Greetings to everyone from my kitchen in University City, Missouri, for our final session of Bible 101 uh, during the course of this spring season. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the priest associate at the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion, and also have the privilege of serving as the bishop's deputy for violence prevention in the Diocese of Missouri. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about this period of being in between, in between Easter and Pentecost. As our vision begins to shift from the joy of the resurrection and its celebration, to talking about and considering what we do with that joy, how we put that into action. Eastertide, uh, those great 50 days following uh, uh, the celebration of Easter, uh, brings into focus our doubts and invites our belief. Consider that for a moment. From the very first morning of Eastertide, uh, we're greeted with Mary Magdalene encountering the tomb and wondering where uh, Jesus has been taken, doubting that he could have possibly arisen. We find the disciples, Thomas in particular, needing to put his fingers into Jesus' side and his hands uh, to remedy his doubt. And even the travelers uh, who accompanied Jesus on the road to Emmaus uh, also had their doubts. But each of those snippets uh, of early engagement with Jesus not only address the concept of doubt, but invite our belief. Jesus is, in fact, raised from the dead and present with us even today. But we're coming close to the end of the 50 days of Easter and approaching the season of Pentecost, that time where we're encouraged to consider how we put that belief in the risen Christ to work, how we energize the nature of mission and discipleship. It's often referred to as ordinary time, that time when we contemplate the life of the church and the life of our ministry, as contrasted with God's time during Advent, Epiphany, uh, Lent, and Easter, when we focus on the nature of God, and in particular, the nature of Jesus. So we're in this interim, this time between Easter and Pentecost, but we're also looking forward, beginning to consider what it is from our Easter experience that will allow us to be faithful followers of Jesus and allow us to bear witness to the good news to a world in such pain. There are any number of questions, I think, that uh, uh, we raise in our own lives about the nature of discipleship. And these are among at least a few. Who does God want us to be? Priest, lawyer, doctor, husband, wife, son, daughter. Who does God want us to be, not only in the most intimate of our relationships, but as God's tools in the world? Second question, perhaps, for us is, what should we do? Even if we understand to what we've been called and summoned by God. What do we do with our hands, our feet, our minds, our ears, our eyes, our every senses, our entire being? Hmm. Now, there's another question. With whom should we do it? 
Is our focus solely on the marginalized, solely on those who are oppressed, solely on those who've not yet encountered the grace of God made present in the life of Jesus? Who is our neighbor? To whom do we share God's grace? For whom should we do it? Not just with whom we do it, but for whom? Why? Why would we do it? What is it about God's invitation to ministry for us? Empowers us. Finally, we ask the question, if not so crassly, what's in it for us? At the very least, what should we expect as Jesus' disciples? So who should we be? What do we do? With whom should we do it? Who are our companions, our partners? For whom should we do it? The marginalized or a broader reflection of society? Why? What is it that empowers us? And finally, what do we expect from it? There are clearly any number of possibilities, but to name a few, uh, discipleship uh, certainly involves loving ourselves, accepting ourselves as God's creatures, God's redeemed creatures, loving others as God implores us to love others as we love ourselves. Discipleship certainly involves sharing the plentiful and abundant resources God has blessed us with. Giving up our lives, sometimes figuratively, in terms of the work that we do and those for whom we share our concern, sometimes for the martyrs, it means literally giving up living in this earth, in this world. Discipleship certainly also involves challenging social, political, economic, and religious orders. These are all possibilities for the discipleship to which we've been called and, in fact, influence. Uh, us and the church writ large in many ways. Trying to think about my own life and the life of the people of Holy Communion in the Diocese of Missouri. In response to the question, what do we do with the good news? What God does God want us fundamentally to do, to be, and to be with? I was called to this wonderful several verses from the Old Testament minor prophet Micah. Micah is posing the same question, trying to figure out what God really wants from him. And here is the dialogue from the sixth chapter of that work. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the response is, he has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God? 
So in searching for what God would want, we discover that it's not ritual, it's not sacrifice. It is simply to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Now, we Episcopalians, I have to admit, far too often confuse the verbs in this snippet from Micah. You see, we love to do justice, and we love doing kindness. We love justice, and we do kindness. Just the opposite of what Micah has proposed. Why? What is it about loving justice as opposed to doing justice? that we find so alluring and attractive. Perhaps for some of us, it's the fear of activism, being out on the streets, being known publicly for opposing systems and structures and inequities and the consequence it might have for us personally, for our families, for our work, for our very lives. Perhaps the second dimension that uh, attracts us to loving justice rather than doing it is our own comfort with the existing social system for far too many of us. That system actually seems to work. We're comfortable. We have food, housing, access to health care, access to high-quality education, and the abundance of God's resources that we use to enjoy our lives. So deep down inside, we may find ourselves not wanting to change and certainly not wanting to be an agent of change. And finally, I'd suggest there's also simple inertia. We get intellectually, theologically, spiritually lazy. And it's easier for us to talk about justice, to think about justice, even to pray about justice, than to actually get out and do justice. The second part of Micah's exhortation is to do kindness. Actually, in Micah's exhortation, it's loving kindness, loving mercy. Doing kindness is what we find attractive. It seems to be something that captures our imagination. We're doing justice. Doesn't. And what about doing kindness that we find attractive? First of all, it's not threatening. I mean, it's good to be the bearer of glad tidings. It's good to be out and about and helping people. It's non-threatening to us and often to others. It also makes us feel really good. When we do something kind, when we engage in acts of mercy, we come away often enriched. There's a bit also that salves our conscience, makes us feel like we've accomplished something. It's a bit like checkbook ministry. Instead of getting out and uh, meeting people where they are and getting our hands dirty, we simply write a check and hope someone else will do it. I think we also find ourselves doing kindness. Because it costs us little but our own time. So the challenge then, Micah 
speaks of God requiring that we do justice and that we love mercy. Too often we find ourselves loving justice and trying to do mercy. As I mentioned, we're summoned to do justice. We're summoned to love kindness. Well, what does justice mean in the context of the Hebrew scriptures? It comes from the Hebrew word mishpat. And mishpat has several dimensions and connotations associated with it. The first of which is judgment. Justice requires that judge, in the case of Micah, God, determines that which is right, that which is wrong, that which is good, that which is soil. We'll see in just a moment, it also extends uh, to the work of the world, uh, particularly noteworthy in the Old Testament uh, Hebrew scriptures, uh, referring to the activities of the judges. Justice also focuses on the concepts of rights. What are people entitled to? What is intrinsically valued? What is intrinsically part and appropriately so, of the human experience. Justice ensures vindication. Those who have been wrongly accused, been harmed, are vindicated. Justice ensures that they are reintegrated into society. Their positions are re-elevated. Justice also has a dimension of deliverance. Deliverance, most notably, out of the hands of oppressors. People fleeing from Egypt for God's people being rescued by Cyrus in their captivity uh, in Babylon. That is God's justice. And finally, justice in the Hebrew scriptures addresses the issue of restoration. Uh, a restoration of equity, balance within God's creation and created order, and harmony that all those pieces of the created world function well together in God's eyes. In this context, God serves as the judge and the guardian of justice. First, we need to understand, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, that justice is focused on social relationships. It's not an abstract comment. It's not just about laws. It's about the way in which laws are implemented not only between human beings, but also between human beings and God. We also understand that God punishes those who violate the covenant or who harm others. So uh, one can fall uh, victim uh, to God's justice uh, by violating the relationship that God has created with us as human beings or by being convicted in God's eyes of the harm that we've done to other elements of God's creation. I think it's also noteworthy uh, in the context of justice that we understand that punishment extends beyond individuals, but to nations. So not only can we personally be held liable uh, for our unjust action, so can nations be held liable. And consequently, we can envision, and appropriately so, that uh, justice is remedied both by personal punishment as well as by military action. 
as the tools of God's justice. And if there's no more important takeaway from the passage from Micah, it's the last point. God's expectation of us is not personal piety, but a righteous and just life. And as Luther and Paul would argue, if in fact we are righteous and lead a just life, if we welcome and have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, that will become our piety. It's also important, as I mentioned a moment ago, to understand there is fairness that is implicit in God's justice. And while this is not uh, the setting to go into a detailed discussion of fairness, uh, I think it is worthwhile, since Micah exists in the context of the Hebrew scriptures, to point to the best example of that, and that's life under the judges of ancient Israel. Uh, these judges, you might re recall, were appointed uh, uh, in an attempt to avoid uh, establishing a kingship uh, within Israel, uh, and they were appointed to execute justice. What does that mean in ancient uh, Israel. Well, first, in peace, it means to resolve legal disputes. So doing justice uh, involved disputes among people, but it also involved uh, violations of uh, the laws that govern the life of the religious life of Israel, so relationships with God. And in war, uh, we find that uh, fairness is uh, executed by the justices in their ability to command military campaigns. So again, the point being that justice is a very, very expansive term uh, that uh, is associated with our individual lives, as well as the lives of the nations in which we exist. Perhaps the most profound of the exhortations that undergird the call to justice is the special call for the poor. In the Hebrew scriptures, the poor are defined as those who are economically poor, to be sure. It's also the widow, the fatherless, and the oppressed. We have a preference for these, not only in our life of faith, but in the way in which we extend ourselves and our resources to attempt to achieve justice. The expectation that God has for uh, our lives, especially in the care of the poor, is that they have a normal life and are treated fairly in business. It is both a moral norm, the right thing to do, and a human right. It comes both from God and from the relationship in and among people. The concept of righteous or tzaddik in Hebrew, those siding with God and the oppressed. So to be a righteous person is to side with God and those who are oppressed. Interestingly enough, uh, for those who remember the uh, movie from several decades ago, Schindler's List, uh, Schindler uh, rescued uh, any number of Jews from the tortures and murders 
of the death camps in Nazi Germany, and for his action was named a righteous man, a Gentile who ultimately was allowed and accorded the privilege of being buried in Israel. Finally, to talk about justice is fundamentally to eliminate the inequalities that exist in our world. To eliminate the inequalities, to ensure not only a normal life, a fair life. So, in summing up what we think we might have learned about justice and doing it, we understand that justice was established by God. So it's not a human creation. It's not fundamentally something that grows out of uh, government and civil authority, but is in fact a theological concept defining God's relationship with us. Secondly, it's embedded in God's covenant with us. Third, it demands a faithful relationship with others before, before we can find complete vindication in our relationship with God. Justice requires our engagement, our action, and to give of ourselves sacrificially. And it is especially focused on the needs of the marginalized. Doing justice means getting our hands dirty. Doing justice means not just writing a check, but getting out and working in the world with the talents and skills that God has given us, especially for those who need care and love the most. There's obviously a second dimension to Micah's call to discipleship, and that is to love kindness or mercy. The concept of mercy, which is the older translation, uh, comes from the Latin merces, and it emanates from our relationship with God. Mercy, first and foremost, is understood in our lives as something that God has shared with us. It addresses uh, most particularly the needs of those who have no claim, no ability to provide restitution. Just as I am, Lord, just as I am. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. It exists because God, first and foremost, loves us and gave his only son for us. It's also available even to those who have violated God's covenant. Lord, have mercy on me, or I am a sinner. In that statement, we acknowledge that we have violated to one degree or another the relationship God expects us to have with God. And yet, even in the midst of that, there is absolution. And in that absolution, our acceptance of it, we're obligated to share it with others. Most particularly, we see that reflected in Jesus' sermon entitled The Beatitudes, where those who have been shown mercy 
are expected to share mercy, especially with uh, those who we might define as our enemies, personally, and enemies of God, or us. What Michael wants us to understand is that mercy requires that we bear other people's pain. We bear that pain. What's the ethos of mercy or kindness? First of all, it's dependent on God's mercy, not on the moral independence of those exercising it. We cannot be kind. We cannot be merciful unless and until we accept that our capacity for that is a gift from God. Nor, as I mentioned a moment ago, is it motivated by an ethical principle, some abstract concept. But it's motivated by the needs of fellow creatures of God. We are to be merciful because every other creature in this world needs it, just as we do. And finally, the passage from Micah and the exhortation to our discipleship is to walk humbly with God. What does that mean? In the Hebrew, uh, the word humbly uh, perhaps is better translated carefully, circumspectly. We do so and we understand it as the recipients of God's unmerited grace. That brings us joy. We do that as the recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And with us, we do it as God's companion. We walk with God, not in front of God, not behind God, but with God. And in doing so, Teresa of Avila reminds us, we are the duty-bound instruments for enacting God's reign through justice and mercy. We are the hands, the eyes, the heart, the ears, the feet that reflect Jesus in this world. There's much for us to consider as we prepare for ordinary time, for the season of Pentecost and an exploration of discipleship in all its many dimensions. But I'd like to suggest for our conversation that we consider three questions. First, how do you engage in doing justice? What inhibits you? And what might empower you to do justice? Second, how is kindness or mercy reflected in your life and discipleship? And what most challenges you in sharing it? And finally, what does it mean to you and in your life, to be God's companion. Thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you today. And I look forward to our conversation during coffee hour uh, on Sunday, beginning at 1130 Central Daylight Time. Take care and God bless.